You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Starr. I'm a paediatrician at the Children's Hospital. And I'm here to have a chat to Lionel Lubitz, who's been a paediatrician here and in the community for many, many years. Today, we're going to talk about some behavioural issues, attention deficit disorder, autism, and the like that Lionel was very involved in. Hi, Lionel. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Um, We just thought that it was a good idea to have a chat and not lose some of the, the gems that are sitting inside you that you've used during your years of working here at the Children's. And I guess we wanted to talk about it, I'm sure, and you may have some ideas too that you want to add, but some of the particular areas that you've worked in, like ADHD and, and autism, which also you've seen many, many kids with these things and seen as an expert in that area. Yeah. Do you think those things are, you know, intentional but other behavioural things in autism are more common or again are we just recognising them better yeah. or wanting to label them maybe? What's maybe. the story? I think it's definitely extending the spectrum and <laughs> I feel a little bit uncomfortable when I see kids who are diagnosed as being just on the edge of the spectrum because it's pathologizing kids who just happen to have certain temperaments and so there is a discomfort in me Except it does help me understand why they're experiencing the the difficulties they're experiencing. So, for example, when I see somebody who's on the autism spectrum, assuming it's a significant autism, I will, in the second interview, once I've seen them once, come back for review, talk about the diagnosis, I will immediately give the parents and the child a description of comorbidities. That's one of the things that I've found really helpful. I'll draw a little circle, and in the circle I'll put ASD. And then I'll draw circles around it, which which all become um, interlinked. And I'll put anxiety, I'll put ADHD, I'll put behavioral problems, I'll put um, sensory difficulties. And then I'll go through each of them and say, you know, if you've got lots of sensory issues, this is where you need to go. If you've got lots of language issues, this is where you need to go. If you've got high anxiety, this is where you need to go, psychology. And maybe medication. If you've got attentional issues, maybe medication with an educational program adjustment. If you've got major behavioural meltdowns and serious behavioural issues, psychology of course, plus um, medication sometimes. So when you put that picture to them, then they've got the future mapped out a little bit. This is what we might expect into the future. And then when they come back in a year or two and say, you know, the issues now are really, we can't get him out of the house, he's so anxious. Then you say, right, let's put in place some treatment for the anxiety. Or let's put in place some treatment for his ADHD. Or let's put in place some treatment for his um, emotional dysregulation. And I think that that gives you a very useful baseline and I don't always arrange to see them again. I don't say come back in six months for a checkup. I say come back when these problems start manifesting. And do you think, are there things that, you know, that these, some of these kids are pretty tricky to manage both the families but the children themselves on the behavioural issues feels to me sometimes like I'm not making much of a difference. What, what, what have you learned from yeah. some of those kids? Yeah, I think I think that is difficult. I think they are very difficult to, to, to treat and quite often you need to do a mixture of both psychological input, which is cr- clearly step one, mm. 
And I think in many of these kids, they need medication as well. And I don't have a difficulty in recommending uh, a mixture of both psychological input and medication. If I, in the, an ideal world, I would use a more comprehensive psychological service, like a CAM service, with some family work, some parent work, mm. child work. But you know, it's hard. can't get that. Mm. Can't get, the CAM service can't offer that. If we had to send all our kids who needed mm. that, they wouldn't cope. Um, and there's certain CAM services that are more able to manage these kids than others, or KIMS as they call them now. Yeah, nowadays, yeah. So I think that I've given up doing that. I've also given up referring to psychiatrists. I haven't found them that helpful. I think a well-trained psychologist and me looking after the medication side mm. is a good combination. Have, are there any particular lines of therapy that you think have been better or worse? Yeah. You know, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that because mm. I know people who've used, um, you know, r the RDI, the um, CBT, the, lots mm. of different kinds of psychological um, approaches. Um, but I don't know if I'm very good at knowing which is best for a particular patient. Mm. I kind of rely on the psychologist who's skilled with autism to help me with that. Um, I know some of my colleagues have particular favourites, but I don't think I know enough about the different types. There's a new one, the sort of compassion. Yeah, well, I can't remember what that is either. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about some behavioural kids with behavioural issues yeah. and the, some of the things that you've learnt that really work with those kids. You know, some of the kids who are oppositional, the angry, other things like so, that. So I think the first thing to say is that never underestimate how useful you are just by listening, mm. you know, just by being there and hearing it and just making the family and the child feel like you've heard them. So the important thing in that kind of context is to try and keep quiet and I, I tend to talk quite readily and I've trained myself to shut up, to try and, when I find myself about to get involved in a, a conversation with the patient or the parent, I try and stop myself. I say to myself, just shut up, just let, let, let it evolve. We've been trained that as undergraduates, yeah. we were trained that. And I keep having to remind myself, just slow down, stop. And once I've heard what they say, to try and kind of feedback, do I understand it right? And once I've understood that correctly, um, then to, I guess try and we as paediatricians work on strategies. So you talk about what strategies can be helpful in a domestic situation, in a school situation. How do you help the, the young person deal with whatever it is that they have happen, ha happening to deal with? You know, in very young children, we often do things like star charts and behavior charts. I do that, but we all know that after a few <laughs> weeks, the kid's going to lose interest in it. It's hard to keep that going. But I think in the beginning it gets them engaged and it gets them started. And if I had, if I had a perfect world, I would see those kids more often. Mm. I think if I could see them every couple of weeks and kind of really establish a, a connection with them. Like kids with encopresis, my favourite topic. Encopresis. You cannot treat encopresis 
effectively without seeing these kids very often, establishing a bond with them, working together with them. And if you do that, seeing them every week or two, which we almost find impossible in our mm. current work situation, if we can do that, I'm abs and I've done it in a few kids where I've managed to get them to come back more regularly, we do much better. So I think listening to what they say, having them feel that they're being heard, the parents, feel, the kids feeling they're on their side. And I often say to the kids, you know, I'm on your team and I'm going to try and help your parents understand it better so that we can do better for you because you want to improve the quality of your relationships, quality of your life. Often I'll use language appropriate for the age, mm. if it's a younger child or an older child. So I think that we can be useful in a limited way. And then, of course, we can use resources, psychologists and psychiatrists sometimes, to help us with those things. And then, in some occasions, we use medication. So, talking about that relationship with your kids and seeing them and the families often, let's talk about what happens, as you've been seeing them for many years, and it comes to the point where they're 16, 17, 18, yeah. you've been looking after them, maybe for the whole of their 18 yeah. years. That, that, that's a huge challenge because mm. the difficulty in releasing these kids is on both sides mm. because you've established a real bond with these families, with these children. Uh, and in particular, the kids with nonverbal autism where you've been such an uh, important part of their family life, you've been part of their treatment and they're getting to older and you have you have to let them go. Um, so what I've learned about transition is firstly you have to start early and um, in the work that we did over the last three or four years even at 12 mm. to raise the issue once they start high school if they are at school at uh, mainstream you raise the issue you know we're now getting to the age where he's starting to become more like an adult and we're going to start dealing with things a bit more in an adult way. For example, I want you to come into the consultation on your own if you can and have a chat with me on your own first and then your mum or dad will come in afterwards. And we also have to kind of start recognising that as you get on in school, when you come to the end of your school life, you're going to become an adult and you won't come and see me anymore because I see children. But we've got a long time to go between then uh, and now. And when they're 15, start a serious, a serious shared care with the GP. We've been very remiss in not involving GPs. And in the work that I was doing with the transition team, I spoke to many, many GPs, probably hundreds. And the GPs almost universally say we have been in emasculated by you paediatricians. We've lost our skills because the patients aren't coming to see us and now they're 18 and you want us to take over. Mm -hmm. So what we've learned from that is that you have to start at 15, you start a shared care model where every six months they see you, every six months they see the, P the GP, every three months they're seeing somebody and we started a book called Fearless um, tearless transition where you, the GP can write some notes which uh, doesn't have to be an essay and you can write a few notes so that they can the family can hold the book go between patient 
between the GP and the pediatrician, and in the hope that once they're 18, the GPs are well equipped to take over the care because they realize it's not rocket science. It just needs some understanding, understanding of a few medications that they might be on, understanding of some strategies. And I think the GPs are very competent and able to take over. So that's what the transition of kids with autism and intellectual disability particularly I think should be looking like in the years to come. To mainly GPs, are there, I mean there are some times when they obviously need um, multidisciplinary teams or other other groups and are there groups that you found particularly useful? Yes, so, so that's been disappointing and useful. So the, the St Vincent's uh, fantastic multidisciplinary team, mm. if you've got a, a physical disability, if you haven't got a physical disability it's problematic. Uh, because they are used to seeing kids with cerebral palsy and epilepsy and those things. But with the kids with, with autism, intellectual disability, maybe ADHD, maybe on some medication for mood regulation of some sort, they could be seeing a psychiatrist, but often not. And s sometimes there isn't a team that can reassess them, except for yourself and the GP. And I'm not sure if you need that. I think that if, if for most of these patients, a paediatrician handing over to a GP who's well versed in the issues, we actually produce some material for GPs that we send to them on what you can expect uh, in these kids, what sort of medications you might be on, what sort of problems they might present to you. with. So we try to put together a little kind of... Um, uh, handbook mm. and I hope that that would be useful for the GPs to use but in terms of doing a multidisciplinary assessment that isn't really accessible for these kids mm. unless they've got something else. Well we'll uh, continue this conversation another day. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Today we talked about some behavioural problems such as autism, attention deficit disorder and anxiety with Lionel. If you want to catch more of this sort of thing go to our website. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.